following message is a presentation of Valley Metro Church, a community of believers dedicated to knowing God and making Him known. I'm really excited that we're continuing in our Revelation series where God lets us know the future. Literally, we get a snapshot of the future, we get to see what it looks like, and it might not be every detail about everything in our lives, but there is a very clear overview of what God has for the future of all humanity, the earth, the planet, the fulfillment of many things we've been waiting for, and it's laid out in the book of Revelation. We talked about this last week, and we discussed last week the, uh, the biblical... Uh, principle of the rapture. Uh, The rapture is a point in time where Jesus is coming back for his people and um, where he's literally snatching them up, taking them away. And they're uh, all, you know, evangelical believers who believe in the authority of scripture believe in a in a rapture, there's different views as to what point in time it comes, and those are valid views. Uh, last week, we looked at a view that I personally hold to, although, uh, you know, there's, there's great arguments for other views. It just seems to be the best fit. When we look at the book of Revelation, we wonder what exact point does the rapture happen, and the book of Revelation doesn't say, stop everyone, right here, this is the rapture. It doesn't say that, so we have to read the other books in the Bible to kind of get an understanding of our timeline to see where it fits in. And so this scene that we're looking at now is after Jesus speaks to the churches, the churches in Revelation, the churches in modern-day Turkey. He gives a message to these churches, which are not only historic churches. It applies to all churches through all times, and it applies to our lives as well. You can read about the churches, and you go, oh, yeah, that's me. Or you might say that church is kind of where I was at a few years ago. And it's really cool how God is directing and spurring the churches on. And so we're in the story as well. And the very next scene after talking to the churches is literally the throne room of heaven. And my prayer this morning is that you get to experience the throne room. Although you might not be standing there right now, John is standing there. And he's going to explain some things about the throne room. And I'm convinced that if you stand in the throne room of God, which he is doing, it will forever change your life. But the Bible tells us, you and me, that through what Jesus did, we can enter the throne room. Do you realize that we are encouraged in the Bible to enter the throne room of God? Some of you are thinking, well, pastor, I'm here on earth and God's in heaven. How am I going to enter God's throne room? The Bible says you do it in the spirit, not in the flesh. By the power of the Holy Spirit, a a true and deeper sense of worship is not just worshiping in the natural realm, it's worshiping in the spiritual realm. And the Bible says because of what Jesus did, we can come boldly before him. We can enter into his courts with thanksgiving and praise. Literally, you can enter the presence of God, the throne room of God, through praise, through adoration, and you can experience the presence of God. Now, I'm not sharing just this for the sake of experience, But I will say, if there's a biblical experience, I want it. How about you guys? If it's in the word and it's a biblical experience, I want every experience in this word. We can't let our experience dictate our theology. Our theology needs to dictate our experience. Mm -hmm. However, if it's in God's word, I want every experience in there. And Jesus said, talking to the woman at the well, the Father is looking for worshipers. The Father is looking for worshipers. Some people think, well, I thought he just wanted believers. Deeper than that, he's like, keep coming. 
Believe's a good start. Keep coming. Worship. The Father is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth, the Bible says. There's something profound about worship. We talked more about worship last week. If you're interested in some of the detail of what worship looks like, how do we get into God's presence through worship, some of those things, check out last week's message. But this week, I want to move forward with this scene of heaven, the scene of heaven that can forever change your life. It certainly changed John's life. We know in history, he finally got out of this prison colony on this island um, off the Mediterranean, off the coast of Turkey, and he later went back to Ephesus. And we know from church history, he was profound. He was so amazing with some of the things we have recorded in church history of how he was changed by walking with Jesus, but also maybe being on that prison colony for a while and experiencing the throne room, I believe. I believe when you experience the throne room, you can be forever changed. And so uh, let's read this. We're going to actually cover two chapters today. We're going to move along pretty quickly, but it's really cool. And uh, I hope you get to experience the throne room through this. Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. We're going to look at it in sections, and we have it on the screen for you. You can look at it on your phone, your device, whatever you have, or there's a Bible in the chair uh, in front of you. Um, But anyway, it goes like this. Revelation chapter 4, it starts, after this... I looked, and there before me was a door standing open to heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once, I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Now, we hit on that part last week. I just want to recap something about this. It starts with an open door. And it starts with an invitation from God. And the beautiful thing about heaven, about eternity, it is about an open door and it is about an invitation. And God is offering everyone on planet earth an open door and an invitation. Not just to heaven when you get there, here and now. He he offers an open door and an invitation to come up, to come up. The problem is too many people either don't recognize the open door and the invitation, or they don't respond to the open door and the invitation. I trust you here today because you've responded to God's open door and his invitation. And yet so many people don't even know that God has an open door and an invitation. Or if they do, they don't respond to it. And that's where we come in. We want to partner with God in the proclamation of God's open door and his invitation. You guys up for that? Calling? Amen? That's our job. We're ambassadors. We're ministers of reconciliation. Our job is to tell family, friends, loved ones, coworkers, the reality that God has an open door and an open invitation for everyone. Get in on it. So uh, talking about the scenery here, we're going to look at the scenery of heaven. But I am convicted there's a couple of scenes. There's a couple of scenes that if you and I could really imagine them and really put ourselves for a moment in these scenes, they're not figurative scenes, these are very real scenes, these are very real spiritual realities. These two scenes, either one of them or both of them, would radically alter our lives. I believe it altered John's lives. And the two scenes that would change our lives if we could experience them is the scene of heaven, the throne room of heaven. If you or I were actually standing in the throne room of heaven, and hopefully we can do it vicariously through John today as he's explaining it, but if you and I stood in the throne room of heaven, we would be changed forever. 
Um, if you guys are worshipers where you really try to desire to press in to meet God in the spiritual realm, not in the natural, but to press in in the spirit and worship in a deep, deep, deep place, maybe you have truly sensed the presence of God in your life. And when you do sense the presence of God, you know you are changed. Things are happening. You can't really be the same when God shows up and makes himself real. That is one scene that would change our lives forever. The other scene that's equally powerful in a different context is the scene of hell. Now, we haven't been to hell, and we don't know anyone that's been there and come back and told us what hell is like, although the Bible is pretty descriptive, and Jesus gives a a story of Lazarus where he tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And what he says in that story is the rich man, uh, he's not in hell because he was rich. He was uh, in hell because he lived a self-centered life. And and Lazarus was an other-centered person, a humble person. And Jesus shares a story where the context is in eternity, and in eternity, Abraham is in God's presence. Excuse me, Lazarus is in God's presence, and um, the rich man is not. And you can see in the scene that Jesus describes where there's two different parallel worlds going on, and one is glorious and one is horrendous. And the rich man says, please send the servant Lazarus over to give me water. And Jesus says, no, it doesn't work that way. There's a great divide and nobody can cross. It doesn't work that way. And then the rich man says, well, can you at least send Lazarus back to my people to tell them of what this future scene looks like? Because if they knew what this future scene looks like, they would change their lives. And Jesus said, no, even if someone rose from the dead and told them, they still wouldn't believe. And so back to the story about God's open door and his invitation. Some people are willing to believe and some people aren't willing to believe. But he has an open door and a wide open invitation to heaven. And these are two snapshots. Um, there's, a, there's an evangelist who really has um, taken his whole presentation of the gospel based on the scene of what hell looks like and imagining that if you could just for a minute, almost like a plane flying over or a helicopter, if you could just fly over and just hang there just just for a few seconds and take off, you would remember it forever. And he kind of holds on to that because he, he, he realizes there's two futures, two different outcomes. And, and when you see it, you realize what it is. And when you don't see it, it's easy to ignore it. The same is true with heaven as it is hell. Some people want to ignore it, and I don't want to talk about it, and I don't want to know about it, I don't want to imagine it, and they just can go on living in ignorance. But when you see the snapshot, the visual, uh, the scenery of heaven or of hell, both are profoundly motivating, and in this, we get to see the throne room. And in fact, these chapters of, of Revelation 4 and 5 have nothing but throne room. They're filled with a throne room experience that is a life-changing experience, and we're going to dive into this glorious scene and see what it looks like. And the cool thing about this, guys, is you too, if you're in Christ this morning, you're going to get in on this scenery too. You're going to get to see what John is explaining here. This will not be foreign to you. When you get there, you'll be like, that's just like revelation. And it's explosive, the stuff going on. You're like, oh my goodness. This is not sitting on a cloud playing a little harp, okay? Wherever you got that visual from the comic books or whatever, lose it, lose it. We're not going to be sitting on a little cloud playing a harp. Heaven is off the chart. No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart has imagined what God has in store for those who love him. It's amazing. So here we go with the scene of heaven, uh, the throne room, where John is getting a full taste of heaven, and hopefully we can get a taste of heaven out of this. 
Verse three, it says, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled a throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. From the thrones came flashes of lightning. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. And these are the seven spirits of God Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal, and in the center, around the throne, there were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in the front and the back, and the first living creature was like a lion, and the second was like an ox, the third had the face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. Uh, and was covered with eyes all around them, even under the wings. Let's stop right there in this. This is amazing scenery. Could you imagine rolling up on heaven one day and seeing this? We would be pretty freaked out. We'd go, what in the world is that? We'd be staring at stuff going, is that what I think it is? We would be enamored. We would be fixated on certain things in heaven going, the sound, the lighting, the, the visuals, the stuff we're seeing, we would be enamored. And this starts out, saying that there's 24 elders. Now, these elders are not angels because angels don't sit on thrones in the Bible. Angels don't wear crowns in the Bible, and they're not clothed in white. These are all three things that are promised for believers like me and you. We are promised crowns, rewards. There's gonna be rewards that God gives. If you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with greater. And people don't realize that this life will affect that life. Listen, this life monumentally affects that life. Heaven is a saved by grace through faith in Jesus. It's a free gift. We don't earn it. However, how responsible we were in our faithfulness and stewardship of everything that was God, the kind of God-honoring life we lived has a monumental effect on eternity and what that's going to look like. Uh, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he's taught, the Bible talks about the greatest in the kingdom and these different things. I remember the apostle said to, to John, uh, actually James and John's mom came to Jesus and said, can my sons sit at your right and left hand in your kingdom? She had a little idea that there's this reward system up there and a, and a good Jewish mom, of course, hey, can my boys over here, can they sit at your throne in heaven? Of course she's looking out for her boys. That was a well-intended thing. She just didn't understand the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, no, it doesn't work the way you're thinking it works. However, we see in this scene 24 elders and they are clothed in white. The Bible says that uh, when we go to heaven, Jesus is gonna clothe, clothe us in the wedding clothes for the lamb when we have this final feast that's profound in heaven that he clothes us uh, in white. And we talk about crowns in scripture where there are rewards uh, gifted in grace to God's people um, as they served him in faithfulness as God sees fit. And they're sitting on these thrones. Now who they are, we know they're not, we know they're not um, angels. Uh, so these are likely, for example, the 12 apostles and 12 other faithful ones. All we can say is faithful ones, possibly Old Testament leaders. There are 12 tribes of Israel could be people like Moses, Elijah, we don't know. But the beautiful thing about the 24 elders, they're not given names and they're not given numbers. It's not like you're elder number one and you're elder number 24. They're not given names and they're not given numbers. 
I would just say that to mention this morning that promotability in God's kingdom is not based on our name or what number we are. Uh, When people care about their name and their number, that is not the requirement, I think, for promotion in God's kingdom. But those who say, I must decrease so that he can increase, that's what God is looking for. God is saying, those who humble themselves in my sight, I will what? Lift them. I will lift them up. Those who hum- so these 24 leaders were humble people who served God in faithfulness, who God saw fit to sit on these 24 thrones. Uh, there's four living creatures. It says that these are cherubim, which are the mighty angels, the mightiest angels. We won't get into angelology and the difference in the Bible that lists the names of certain angels and how uh, the order of the angelic realm works. But the fact is that these are mighty cherubim. These are powerful, powerful angels. And their appearance is symbolic of all creation. When you see what they look like, it symbolizes their uh, um, their place to go around the earth and oversee certain things. Um, It says the first one was like a lion, which is the king of the jungle. The other is like an eagle, which is the king of the air, so to speak. Uh, One is like an ox, which represents all the toil that man does and everything we produce for life and to grow food. The ox plows land and one like a man, and man has been given dominion over everything on earth. So these angels have these representative faces. If you get too caught up in the symbols of Revelation, you miss the big picture. The symbols are important. They mean things. But if you stop and stumble over a symbol, it's like not seeing the forest through the trees. You've heard that expression? You have to keep looking at the sequence as it rolls out and the big picture things. They have many eyes around them, which means they can see way more than humans can, and they can see in the spiritual realm. And when God dispatches angels, it's not like, oh, I wasn't looking that way, and I didn't know what was gonna happen. Angels have this capacity to see. It's a God-given capacity that they have. There's lightning and thunder, and we know that happens in the presence of God. We know in the book of Genesis on Mount Sinai when God was meeting Moses personally and giving him the commandments, the whole mountain was blowing up. There's lightning and thunder and the entire camp of Israel said, look, God must be meeting Moses up there right now. Lightning and thunder, symbolic of God's presence. There's shock and awe. All of nature is is just shaking around the presence of God because he is the the creator himself. And then it says that there's a rainbow encircled around the throne. I love this. There's a rainbow. After the flood, God gave a rainbow. And he said to them, look at this rainbow. I want you to remember this. And they're all blown away. They'd never seen a rainbow before. And he said, I want you to remember this. This is a symbol of my promise to you. The rainbow represents a symbol of my promise to you. And it amazes me that the throne of God is surrounded by a rainbow. It's absolutely beautiful. What this is saying, the picture in heaven is that the presence of God is surrounded by the promises of God. Listen, the presence of God in his throne is surrounded by this rainbow which represents the promise, the covenant he makes with his people. God's nature is tied to his covenant. Does that make sense? 
You can't separate his covenant from his nature. It's just who he is. He's a God who, who does not lie and, and his words are true and everything he wrote is gonna not return void. Everything's gonna come back and have its way and be fulfilled. God's word is that true. But his very throne is surrounded with a rainbow which is symbolic of the promises of God which are absolutely amazing. You know, if God's promised something in your life and you read a scripture and you wanna hold on to it, you need to know that promise is sitting right in the very presence of God. You need to hold on to it in your heart, but that promise is sitting in the presence of God because that's simply his nature. Don't separate the promises of God from God himself. God made his promises and his covenant evidence is all around him. I just love that scene. I, I, I'm just enamored by what that would look like. And then there's seven blazing lamps, which it says are the seven spirits of God. Now, we've covered this before. There aren't literally seven spirits of God. God is triune in nature, Father, Son, and Spirit, but the book of Isaiah tells us, and we've covered it before, so I won't do it this morning, it talks about the seven perfect aspects of the Holy Spirit, and it elab- we've elaborated before on what those seven perfect aspects of the Holy Spirit are, symbolic of these seven blazing lamps, and all I would say is if you or I were in this scene, we would be floored. We would be enamored. We'd be looking at the lamps. We'd be looking at the, the creatures that look like that. And you're like, do they got eyes? They do have eyes. Look at that. Oh, wow, they got the wings over here. What is that? Whoa. We would be enamored. We would be looking at certain scenes in heaven and sounds. And if you're anything like me, we would be blown away. We would be floored. We would be enamored looking at amazing and beautiful things. But here's the downside, because I think this happens in our life sometimes. We can be so enamored looking at things that are intriguing and are powerful and that are mighty and that are new or they're different or we don't understand. We can start looking at certain things in our life and while we're doing that, we can be missing the most important thing. And out of all these profound things that we've been describing and looking at and lightning and thunder and the the rainbow, whoa, that's the promises and all this stuff, we can be missing the main thing. And the main thing is the throne of God. The throne of God right smack in the middle of it all. But if you're like me, things can get busy in life and sometimes you take your eyes off the throne and you're looking around somewhere else and you're missing the main event. I think in heaven we could do the same thing with the scenery right here. It happens to us. You remember the time when Peter, Jesus called him out of the boat, said, come to me, and he's looking at Jesus And when he's got his focus in the right place, he's walking on water. But when he starts looking at very legitimate things, guys, waves slapping and thunder cracking and waves going up and getting splashed in the face, that's hard to ignore, isn't it? If you had waves slapping you in the face, it's it's not easy to ignore these things. The friends in the boat yelling, don't do it, come back, come back, and waves crashing, and Jesus is like, don't listen to them, come to me, come to me, and he's walking on water like, is it working? It's kind of working, whoa, and then he's looking at the waves, everything's going. It's very easy to take our eyes off the main thing and look at the periphery because these things worry us. These things cause doubt. These things cause confusion, and yet when we take our eyes off the prize, that's when we sink just like Peter, and in heaven here, it's easy to look at all this periphery and forget that the main event is the throne, specifically the one sitting on the throne. I trust in your life and in mine too, if we would learn to keep our eyes on the throne, so many other periphery things will just go away, that we could either be worriers or we could be worshipers, and that is a choice you and I have. We have to remember we're talking about the God of covenant here. 
We're talking about the God of promise. We're talking about the God whose entire throne is surrounded by his promises. And you better know that that you can bank on the promises of God just like you can bank on God. He is surrounded by his prominence. The The sign of covenant is all around him. And we could look to God and trust him when we're having problems or issues or we can look at the periphery and go, I don't think it's gonna happen and I'm doubting this one and I'm having a problem with this. Like Peter, take our eyes off. I wanna encourage you this morning, fix your eyes on the throne. I don't know what stage of life you are as a worshiper, but I want to encourage you, fix your eyes on the throne. Learn how to get your eyes on the throne of God, the God of covenant, the God of promise. He sees you and he says, I got you. God says, I got you. You got to know that. God's got you. Um, But we do the same thing. We look at other things. Listen, in heaven, there is a focus. In heaven, the focus is the throne. Ours should be as well. If the throne is the focus of all of heaven, why wouldn't our focus be on the throne? So many things will come into into clarity. So many things will begin to line up when we focus on the God of promise, the God of covenant, the God who loves you and me more than we ever could imagine and knows us better than we know ourselves. And yet, we sometimes recognize, acknowledge him, and then we get right back to our stuff, our problems, and we take our, I'm just telling you, things will fall into focus. If you're a note taker this morning, I want to encourage you to write a few things down. The first one is this. Heaven's focus is the throne. Mine should be as well. Heaven's focus is the throne. Mine should be as well. Um, When we focus on him, everything pales in comparison. When we look at the throne of God, specifically the one sitting on the throne, which we see in this passage, you're going to see it a little bit more clearly in a minute, is God the Father sitting on the throne in this scene right here. And you'll see why it's God the Father in just a second. God the Father sitting on the throne. It's amazing. In fact, this has been referred to as the throne chapter of the Bible, or these two chapters, the throne chapters. There's the word throne of God is used 14 times right here in this little section that we're covering today. And the entire New Testament covers it 14 times. And these two chapters in Revelation cover it 14 times. So there's more conversation about the throne. We get the best visual on the throne of God and what it looks like in God's presence. And this is a place where you are going to be. You're going to see this someday. You're going to walk into this scene someday. You're going to say, this is like right out of the book. And I'm sure when you're there, as much as going on, you're going to be staring at that throne and say, wow. Even though there's going to be a bunch of cool stuff going on all around you, the throne will be right there. It's a beautiful scene. It's when we get to see God for who he really is. And when we do, when we do, when we see God for who he really is, there's only one response. We're only capable, guys, of one response. When you see God for who he really is, there only is one response. It's worship. Bible says, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because when you see him face to face, the only thing you can do is just fall and go, wow, you're the magnificent, the holy one. You are the most high. You're the king. You're the Lord. You're the prey. It will be so obvious. It won't be subjective to what we try to explain it away or maybe ignore things like we do on earth, get busy with other things, change the channel. But when we're in the presence of God, when you see God for who he really is, you can't do anything but worship. It's, it's amazing. That's what our response is. Worship, guys, is all about seeing. Worship is all about seeing. Because when you see God for who he really is, you worship. Now, here's the thing. 
If you don't see God for who he really is, why would you worship? It's very vague, very ambiguous. I don't even know what it means. What am I supposed to do again? Because we don't see God. I understand that because I lived in that place for you know, quite a while myself until I began to realize, wait, God, you're the God of promise. You are knowable. You say draw near to you. You say do it in the spirit, not in the flesh. And so there is an encounter I can have with you according to scripture. Again, not experience for the sake of experience, but any biblical experience, you, you, you better go at it. You better run at it. Don't skip biblical experience, guys. Go at it, okay? And so this is important. Again, we talked more about that last week. But not worshiping is rooted in a lack of seeing and a lack of understanding who God really is. But when we are in his presence, we're compelled to worship. We just have to. We you can't help it. Uh, but in life, you're going to see a lot of things, guys. In life, you're going to see things you understand. You're going to see things you don't understand. You're going to see some wild things. You're going to see great things. You're going to see sad things. You're going to see all kinds of things that life has to offer. But no matter what, if you focus on the throne, everything else will find its place if you focus on the throne. And I want to encourage you to do that because I believe heaven is that way. Another thing about worship, guys, when you acknowledge God on his throne in your life daily, when you really do, you believe, you believe by worshiping God, you're making a statement to the devil and to everyone else, I trust the God of promise who's surrounded by this rainbow of his covenant I trust him, I trust his word, and I might have stuff falling apart. Even if hell is breaking loose down here, God is on the throne up there. And I am taking my life and directing it towards him, and I'm coming under his rule, realm, and authority because he's worthy of all my praise. That just changes everything in your life because you place it, you place it under God. Instead of running around with it out here or over here, you take it all with your life and you put it right under God where it belongs. And God's like, thank you for trusting me. I got that. So it's, it's a realm. This, this throne room is a realm. It's, it's something we get to see and the beauty of it. It's majestic. It's, it's amazing. So Revelation 5 goes on like this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll inside. We're in the throne room of heaven in this profound place where God the Father is being worshiped and adored. And it's time now, guys, it's time now for this scroll to be opened up. And this scroll contains the entire future of all humanity and everything spiritual. Listen, all humanity, present, past, Everything is in this scroll. This scroll is going to be the entire deal and sequence and timing and order and culmination of heaven, hell, the future of everything. It's all in the scroll. This scroll is amazing. This scroll is profound. This scroll can't be compared to anything that ever existed before. And this scroll wasn't even broken out until now in the scene. And then all of a sudden we see it, but no one's touching it. No one's opening it. And no one's breaking a seal. This scroll is, is got the entire future of everything, all life, in this scroll. 
It's a special scroll. It's got detailed, detailed orders of God's plan. We're going to start to read it in the book of Revelation. But in order to read the scroll, you've got to open the scroll. But in order to open the scroll, you've got to break the seals that are on the scroll. It's got seven seals. And in order to break the seal on the scroll, you've got to find somebody worthy. And when we're talking about God's full plan of everything that's going to happen on planet Earth in the spiritual realm, in the heavenlies, all the above forever, there isn't one single one available. They can't find. They're calling anybody worthy. There's nobody, heaven, earth, anything. And John is just weeping going. The future is just sitting in the hands of this angel. He takes this scroll from the Father. He's holding it. Anyone, please, can anyone open this? And everyone's like, we can't even get close to that thing. We can't even get close to it. Because no one's worthy. And then suddenly, verse five, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking like it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He, Jesus walked right up to the fire. Excuse me, guys. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Bam. And he walks right up. And he takes this scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. This is amazing. So John is like, wow, we got this scroll. It's amazing. It's got seals. It's the whole future. No one can open it. Even the angels like, anybody can open this? No, no answer. Heaven, hell, no one can do. Heaven and on earth, no one can open the scroll. And then all of a sudden, the angel goes, oh, John, stop your crying. Look what I see. I see the Lion of Judah, and he's coming this way. And the Lion of Judah is King Jesus. No one in the throne room was worthy except for Jesus. And it's, he's called the root of Jesse, which is the Jewish Messiah comes through the root of Jesse. So this one is the Jewish Messiah we're talking about. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion, the victorious one of Judah representing Israel. He is the lamb of God, the one who took away the sins of the world. He's the lion and the lamb at the same time. Now when Jesus was on earth, he was known as the lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But when he comes back, he's coming back like a lion. He came like a lamb. He's coming back like a lion. In this scene, he's the lion, he's the lamb, he's the root of Jesse. He overcame Satan and sin and death all in one weekend, in one weekend. And now, he's about to unlock the future of all life as it's ever been known in all history right now. He's the only worthy one. The Bible's using the term of seven, seven horns, seven eyes. Seven is the number of completion. It's the number of fullness. 
when, when God created the earth on the seventh day, he rested and that made one complete week and then you move on to the first day of the next week. Seven is this number of completion, perfection. You'll see it come up in the Bible again and again and when you do, it has that meaning. Um, so seven horns represent power on all sides. Like, whoa, he's got power on all sides. These seven horns, that's a symbolic way that would explain this throughout the ages. For 2,000 years, people would understand the fullness of power surrounding Jesus. The seven eyes is the fullness of seeing all things. He's all seeing. He's all knowing. It's the fullness of the spirit. We get this when we see that he's got seven horns and seven eyes, and he's the only one worthy to open the scroll, and here's why it says it. Listen, his worthiness was, was this is the one that, that took Jesus to this profound level. Yes, he's God's son who came to earth, but he came to earth with a mission and it was to die on the cross for the sins of the world. And it's said right in this passage, talking about his worthiness, that he shed his blood to redeem every tribe and tongue and nation. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. Everyone on the planet, no matter what continent we're from or what our people or ancestors are from, that's irrelevant. We all have sin in the DNA. There's sin on the inside. And Jesus came with that mission saying, I'm coming to be the great physician and take it away. And so Jesus, by what he did, redeemed everybody, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that was the heart of Jesus. The Bible says that he humbled himself to a point of death, even death on a cross. And because of that, God raised him up and gave him the name above every name, that every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because he humbled himself, God is lifting him up. There's something profound about the price he paid for all humanity so that every tribe, tongue, and nation can be redeemed. Third point this morning, if you're a note taker, is this. Jesus' heart, Jesus' heart is to redeem every tribe, tongue, and nation. Ours should be too. This is Jesus' heart. This is what he came for. This is the summary in Revelation. He's the worthy one because he came and redeemed every tribe, tongue, and nation. Do you understand his heart, his mission, his life? If that's Jesus' heart, we should line up with him. We should get on mission with Jesus. We should, we should embrace the mission of Jesus. That was his heart. That should be ours as, as well. And um, that's amazing. So chapter four here was worship of the Father. And now we see worship of the Son in chapter five. This is amazing. Because to some people, Jesus is a prophet or a teacher or a miracle worker or maybe Messiah or maybe spiritual figure. A lot of people have a lot of categories for Jesus. But I'll tell you something. When God the Father's on the throne and God the Son walks right up and takes the scroll, you're gonna see something happen here that is undeniably God the Son. Undeniably God the Son. And that's this. Jesus becomes the center of all worship in heaven. Right here. Let me say it again. Jesus becomes the center of all worship right here in heaven. All worship is directed at God the Son. Because he's got to be God the Son because worship God only. You can have no other gods, right? The Bible says worship God only, right? Don't worship, we don't worship angels, people, saints. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> only God, only God. But God the Son rolls up to God the Father and grabs the, the scroll that no one could even touch or even, and he's like, thank you, Father, I got this from here. And all of a sudden, all of heaven, whoo, does this shift, and it gets explosive right here. Listen to this. 
Jesus becomes the center of worship. The four mighty angels, these yoked cherubim that have power beyond all these other angels, super strong, they all turn and they fall and they start worshiping Jesus right at this spot. And then the 24 elders who were bowing and worshiping the Father, now they turn around and now they're bowing and worshiping God the Son, Jesus, the Lion, and the Lamb. And they're playing instruments. Instruments, it's noteworthy. There are instruments in the New Testament. We're reading about it right here in Revelation. They're playing instruments, and they're holding bowls full of prayers from the saints. And it's like, it's beautiful for Jesus. He's just like, this is like incense to him. It's like the people of God asking God, I want to give this to you, this problem. And Jesus is like, thank you, I hear you. And this is bowl of prayers going before Jesus. And they're singing a new song. Everybody say a new song. A new song is a fresh celebration. That's what a new song is. Sing unto the Lord a new song. It comes up a lot in the Bible, and it's a new song. I don't know about you, I love hymns. I love certain hymns. Some, some of the classic vintage ones, they have the best words you ever heard. But there's something about singing a new song unto the Lord. And it's actually commanded in the Bible. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Not a suggestion. Find something to celebrate about and start celebrating. That's kind of what this context is right here. It's a fresh celebration. Whenever there's new mercies, there should be new music. New mercies, new music. When there's new salvation, new songs. New salvations, new songs. We should have things to celebrate. We should have things to celebrate. There's something about fresh celebration. And in heaven, the worship shifts from the Father to the Son. And all of a sudden, there's these new songs busting out in heaven as they're playing these instruments. It's amazing to me what this scene looks like. But hold on, there's more. It goes on in verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000s times 10,000, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Here's what's happening. The circle of worship in heaven is getting monumentally bigger. The worship circle in heaven that had the four mightiest angels and the 24 elders, now all of a sudden there's thousands times thousands, literally millions of angels. When the lamb walks up and takes this throne, takes the scroll, and all of a sudden all heaven focuses on him, angels that were dispatched far away just come right into the presence of the throne room all of a sudden to acknowledge and respect King Jesus. I think it's phenomenal. And this worship circle is getting radically bigger all of a sudden. And what started with just the angels and the elders is now millions. Heaven is literally blowing up with praise right now. Blowing up with praise. But that's not all. There's more. Verse 13. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise, and honor, and glory, and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Now the circle in heaven got even bigger. It's not just the four mighty cherubim, and the 24 elders, And it's not now just the multitudes and millions of angels that just showed up. 
when Jesus takes his rightful place that we see in this scene right now as the one who's about to open the scroll and unlock all future and all history, which we're going to see in the very next chapters, we see that not only that, but every creature in heaven and in earth recognizes him for who he is. When you see Jesus for who he really is, you can't do anything else but recognize him. That's why, again, the Bible says every knee will bow and tongue confess. I don't care who you are. You could be the biggest atheist on the planet. You can be anybody. I don't care who you are or what your background is. When you stand before the living God someday, that's going to be your only response. I promise you. I promise you one thing. That's going to be your only response. There won't be another response. They won't be like, yeah, well, I was going to talk to you when I get around. No, there won't be any of that. You're just going to, your knees will give it. You'll just fall. In his majesty and his magnitude, we simply won't have any capacity to stand in his presence. And then from there, he's going to move you on and do beautiful things and reward you and bless you if you're in Christ. But the point is, you will not be able to stand in the presence of the living God and go, yeah, I want to talk. I got some things, issues with you, God. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? No, it isn't. it's not going to go down that way. For those who are in Christ, the Bible says whatever is not known, he's going to make fully known. So he's going to answer some questions for you, but it's going to be in a respectful way. It's going to be in a profound and glorious way. What was known in part will be fully known. But anybody else showing up, whatever their idea is, God says he put his, his, his majesty is even wired into creation. You can look at creation and know that there's a God. The Bible says even the demons believe in God and shudder. The, the fact that God is it's everywhere. You can't deny God. But when you begin to know who he is and you, you begin to see him for who he is, it, 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 it warrants the verdict of worship. And if you want to try to explain it away and not hear it, not see it, and go through your life living self-centered, and some people do, they don't want the open door to heaven, they don't want the invitation, they don't want to hear it, they're going to stand before him one day and they're going to drop to their knees and say, oh my God, you really are. But we're going to see at that point in time, it's time for judgment because we had a whole life of time and time and time and time and time again to hear the invitation and accept the open door. God's like, I don't want to give you the hammer. I want to give you the hand. I don't want to give you the hammer. I want to give you the hand. Your whole life, even though you don't like me, even though you're running from me, even though you don't care about me, even though you've even blasphemed me, I just want to give you the hand. People are like, no open door. No invitation, not accepting it. And others go, what am I doing? <laughs> of course I got to accept it. Of course I hear it. Of course I got to respond. And that's going to be the paradox of all these people falling in the presence of Jesus. But this is telling us that everything in nature, everything on earth, on the earth, in the air, everything. The Bible says in Romans that all creation moans in yearning for the day. In other words, God breathed life into this universe, and this universe is put together by his timeline. He created DNA. He knows all molecular structure. He invented it, and he knows there's an expiration date, and that even the earth has tremors and things like that. Like, there's going to be a time coming where nothing stays together forever, and the fact of the matter is, all nature yearns for this coming. Like, all nature is like, I can feel it. I, I think it's coming sooner. And so um, the point is this, guys. All of this happens. All praise goes to Jesus at this point. All praise in heaven and on earth. Everything created, all life as we know it is aimed at Jesus. And the reason why, the reason why is because Jesus is worthy. Say worthy. Amen. Say worthy. worthy. That means he's worth it. It means Jesus is worth it. It doesn't mean just believing in him. It's seeing him for who he is and knowing, yep, 
He's worth it. <laughs> he's worth it. He redeemed every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's the one who took all my sin. He, he's worth it. He's the one who can open that. He is so worth it. That's what worthy means, is to recognize Jesus' worth now. Recognize it now, just not when we get there. He is worthy. He is worthy. The last point this morning is this, as the worship team comes up, this would be great, is that Jesus is worthy of all my praise. He is, not just the idea of it, not just the principle of it. Jesus is worthy of all your praise. He is worth it. He is worth your adoration. He is worth following. He is worth serving. He is worth representing. He is worth sharing. He is simply worthy because all of heaven, the throne room, focuses now on Jesus, the lion and the lamb, and the proclamation is, yes, he's worthy. Amen. He's worthy. I just want to encourage you, you got to believe Jesus is worthy, and that means that Jesus is worth all. He's worth all. He's worth everything. Jesus is worth it. I want to encourage you. I don't know what worth you put on him, but he's worth all. He's, worth, he's, he's not just the Savior to say the prayer so you get into heaven or he, yeah, he reminded me on a better way to live. Yes, those are true, but he is worthy. Just like in heaven, everything's turning to him and seeing his value and his worth for what it really is, and we get to do that here. We get to do that here. Um, some of you may know the classic uh, hymn, Handel's Messiah. Any of you guys familiar with Handel's Messiah? Okay, this guy Handel is a composer, 18th century, and he's uh, composing this music, like Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, these kind of guys, and he's composing songs with lyrics to them, and he's these musical pieces, and he's created some great things in his life, but he's at a point in his life where he's realizing that these short songs that actually have scripture in them, because he had some people around him writing some of these songs, he's like, these are the most powerful songs out of any songs ever created. And he realized the word of God being in the song helped people remember the song and know scripture. And he started to, he started to go, God, if this is true, I, get, I need to get closer to you to understand this. And so Handel, this composer, put his pen down and went on a commitment to encounter God the author of it all anyway, the author of music, the author of Revelation, the author of everything. The story is told that he went into his study and kind of checked out, but then no one had seen him for so long. And they're like, what happened to this guy? And nobody could find him. So they went looking for him. And his assistant was looking everywhere for him, and nobody could find him. The assistant was shouting out, going through the whole building, shouting out. The assistant went, knocked on his door, no answer, shouting out. The assistant assistant opened the door and saw Handel on his knees in tears. And he held up this piece of music called Handel's Messiah. And he said, I think I just saw the face of God. In other words, I pressed in and pressed in and pressed in and God honored that and God met me. (laughs) I went to the throne room. And I'll never be the same again. And this thing here, God gave it to me. When I, was, I saw things, I, I, I can't even explain it. The best I can do is try to put the music what I saw. God has, there is revelation in the presence of God. He went on, and maybe you, that was a new song, by the way. And instead of the first time you play a song, the first thing you were required to do back then is play it for the king. He had first dibs on everything. You know what he did? He was in Ireland, England at the time. He went over to Ireland where people were kind of like a semi-slave colony. He went over and played it freely for the people over in Ireland. He's like, God gave me this. I'm bringing it to these people first. The king was mad. 
It's like, you don't do that. King first. He's like, no. God gave this to me, giving it away. He never charged. And he just kept giving away God's creation. Maybe you need a new song in your life. Maybe you need a new song in your life. New songs come out of the presence of God. New songs come from meeting with God. Meeting with God. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. I believe that's where they come. That's where these things come from. And if you learn to spend time in God's presence, I trust God's gonna give you some new songs in your life because here's the deal, guys. We get to taste heaven here on earth. You might say, Pastor, I'm not in that throne room. Someday I will be, but how does it affect me now? It affects you now is because through praise and adoration, you can enter the throne room now. The Bible says we enter boldly, boldly before God's throne through what Jesus did. We can enter boldly. It's an encouragement. Come, come, come. The Father is saying, come, come into my presence. The Father is, worship, uh, is seeking worshipers to, to, to worship in spirit and truth. When you encounter God through praise and adoration, a new song will come out of that. Revelation will come out of that. You will get it. You will just sense the peace of God, the presence of God, which will alter the way you live. It will change the way you live. When we can step into heaven's scene, it changes the way we live. It changes our motivations. I just want to encourage you this morning, guys. God has more for you. God has more for you. God has more fire for your faith. He's got more fuel for your fire. He's got more life. He's got new songs for you. He's the God of covenant promise, the things in your life that right now maybe you've, you were looking to God and then you looked away the other way. Remember, he's still that God surrounded by that rainbow of promise and covenant and saying, look to me, look to me. I'm the God of promise and my words are true. I wanna just encourage you guys to, to let God fully be on the throne in your life. Let him fully be, let him stay on the throne. Let's not put him there on Sunday and take him off on Monday. Let's keep God on the throne. This is where everything comes into, into focus. And I just want to close this in prayer. Ask God to seal some of these things in our life. Mighty God, we, we love you. We thank you for your word, the power of it, Lord, especially the scene of heaven's throne room uh, where, Lord, uh, where we can't be the same after seeing a snapshot of your throne. When we see you as the one on the throne, mighty God, and, and then you hand the scroll to Jesus, your son, and we see all heaven bowing and worshiping him because he is the worthy one. He's worth it all. I just thank you for every price paid on our behalf, everything done, and the great and mighty things you have in store for those who love you, God. Thank you for the, our future is in, incredibly, insanely good. Our future is profound. Our, our, our future is covered. It's handled. It's sealed, the Bible says. It won't perish, fade away, or spoil the things you have for your people. It's, we're, we're locked in you, and I thank you for that, God. But I just pray we would live as covenant sons and daughters. We would believe in your promises. We would live in your promises. We would trust you with things. And I pray, Lord, no matter what's going on with our lives, we would be kind of, not just be believers, but we would be worshipers who say we take everything and we surrender it to you because you're the God of promise and you're the one who's on the throne and nothing even happens without you at least allowing it to happen, God. You're in control and that's what worship means. You're worthy and you're in control. So Lord, teach us to be worshipers, Lord. Teach us to be worshipers. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. This has been a presentation of Valley Metro Church. To hear more messages or to support future podcasts, please visit us at valleymetrochurch.com.